Well, last week was kind of unusual in that we actually finished class at the end of a chapter. So we're starting on chapter four today. And at the very end of chapter three, the writer was talking about the Israelites wandering around in the desert and about how angry God got at them because they put God on trial. And there was no reason for that. I mean, they were, they, they were basically trying and judging God to see if God was good or not. Like there was any question, you know? We look at that and we think, how could they do that? And of course, we do the same thing, you know? So God, the, the scripture said that God pretty much looked at them with disgust and loathing. And the very end of it, God says, you know what? They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, today we're going to talk about rest, God's rest, because this is a big concept in chapter 4. And he begins talking about it at the very next verse, which is the first verse of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, that's kind of weird. That's a very strange way to put it because it's pretty obvious that the context is in the context of the Israelites wandering around in the desert. And when God said they would not enter his rest, he was talking about them not going into the promised land, right? But the writer of Hebrews is talking to Jews who were in the promised land. And it wasn't restful at all. They were being persecuted on every side. It had ever been restful for them. So he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to have failed to reach it. So what in the heck is he talking about here? Makes no sense. So first thing we ought to do is look at what he means by God's rest. And for this, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, literally to Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now the word for rest there is the word Shabbat, literally Hebrew for Sabbath. That is the word Sabbath, Shabbat. And you can see in the definition that it means to repose, to stop exerting yourself. That's exactly what we would think. But look, buried right in the middle of that definition is, a, is the word celebrate. Sabbath means celebrate. The very first Sabbath rest was not an emptiness. It was a celebration of the work completed so far. It was a pause, just like music can have a pause. It's a pause that creates emphasis, that denotes significance. It's like a parenthesis. Okay? So let's see if we follow the theme of God's rest on through the Bible, if that holds true. Fast forward now from creation, we're going to fast forward to the Israelites wandering around in the desert. Now, obviously, Sabbath was given to the Jews, right? These very Israelites. When did God give them the Sabbath? 
When did he tell them to begin observing the Sabbath? Take a wild guess. Ten commandments. Ten commandments. You know what? 99.999% of the people in the world would say that, and that's not where it is. It was before that. He instituted Sabbath before they ever had the law, the covenant, or any of the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 16, 2 through 30. The whole congregation of the people of Israel are grumbling in the desert about Moses and Aaron because they're not getting enough food. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Now mark this part right here. Circle it. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Circle that little phrase at the end of verse 4. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses that, he said to them, well, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you bake and boil what you're going to boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside until morning, just as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it, which was kind of weird, because any other day they kept it overnight, it started to spoil and got worms. But on the sixth day, when they left it overnight, it did not spoil. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Tomorrow you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, what do you think the people did? They went out looking for manna. <laughs> Some of them did, not all of them. That's right. But they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Circle that. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. That was the first Sabbath given to, to the Israelites. Notice the elements of it. Number one, the Lord gave it to them. He gave the Sabbath to the people. It was not he commanded them to rest on the, on the seventh day to just make up a rule. He was giving them a gift. And he made all the necessary provisions so that they didn't have to work on that seventh day, on the Sabbath. And if you back up to the part we circled in verse 4, resting on the Sabbath was an act of obedience and a test of people's belief in God's promises. That is an important element of Sabbath rest. Now later on, when the law was given, of course, it does mention the Sabbath as one of the Ten Commandments. And there's two places in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are listed, where that story is told. And that out of all of the commandments, you know, the commandments typically were don't kill, don't be an adulterer, don't, you know, 
covet. It was don't this, don't that. Honor thy father and mother. Do this. The Sabbath was one of the very few commands that God explained why he was giving the command. But he gave two different reasons in the two accounts. Okay, So let's look at them. Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And here's the because, the why. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made holy. Now let's look at the reason he gave in the other version of the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And here's the reason. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, on the surface, those look like two completely different reasons, right? That you got one reason that says it's because the Lord made the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. And the other reason was because the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Well, let's look at that a little bit better because there's actually, I think they're the same reason. Because if you think about it, the first reason was in remembrance of that pause for celebration. Remember that Sabbath means celebration. It's for the, in remembrance of that pause of celebration for the creation of the heavens and earth. Did you ever stop to think why God created the heavens and the earth? Why, why did he create the heaven and the earth? For us. That's right. He created it for us. He wanted to have a place where man and God could walk together in fellowship. Of course, man's sin got in the way, right? In Genesis 3, 17 through 24, it said, you know, this is after the sin and, and, and Adam, Adam is contrite before the Lord. And the Lord says, you know what? You listened to your wife. You ate from the tree I told you not to eat from. And cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return from the ground. And then he drove man out. And at the east of, of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now in that you can see the punishment. The punishment is that we are going to toil and sweat and, and have to work from rocky ground to make our living. Therefore, what had been the original blessing? He gave it to us at first. He gave it to he us gave at it first. To us the blessing so that we didn't have to work. That's right. Man sin, and now we have to work. That's because right. He gave it to us as a blessing first. And although we were supposed to cultivate it and tend it, it was more a, in kind of a caretaker kind of a beautiful garden as opposed to, you know, dragging up rocks out of the soil. And it was a pleasure. It was, it was work, but it was to be a pleasure. Okay, not a burden. It was not supposed to be a burden. 
The second reason given for the Sabbath was deliverance from Egypt. Well, what was the first thing the Israelites did when God rescued them from the Egyptians? No, they didn't complain first. They did that second. But the first thing they did is in Exodus 14, verse 30, and it continues into the first part of, of uh, chapter 15. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. And it says that Miriam took a tambourine and danced. What did they do? They celebrated, right? There is a there is a common theme here. All right, think about it. Look look at it was a significant pause of celebration, and look at what God said when He told Moses what He would do in Exodus six verses six through eight. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. This is the great promise, even before they were delivered. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to a land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So you see, once again, God had created a place for fellowship. He had a created a place for man and God to be together. And this pause of celebration, this Sabbath rest, was exactly the same kind of Sabbath rest that God had when he created the Garden of Eden as a place for man and God to exist together, to dwell together. Right? You see why I see, I see those as kind of the same kind of thing? God is just trying again. Notice the key elements in each dwelling place. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, which you can read about in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 9, when he, when he describes the promised land, for God, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So it was not through man's work and toil that either the Garden of Eden or the Promised Land were created. God created them by his own hand, and in both cases, man was intended to cultivate the land, but they were to be places of rest, not places of toil. In Deuteronomy, and we just read the about about um, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God. 
in Deuteronomy 12, a little bit later, verses 8 through 12, Moses is talking to the, to the people, and he begins to prophesy. And he says, you shall not do, when you come into the promised land, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. That, that resting place and inheritance was the promised land. Notice the word resting place. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies, there's another rest phrase, around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there's the reference to God dwelling with the man in the promised land, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. So you see, the, the, the Garden of Eden and the promised land weren't just places where man was going to rest, they were both intended as places where God would dwell. Remember in Genesis 3.8, that Adam and Eve hid when they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then in 1 Chronicles 22, 8 through 10, this is during the time of David. And David wants to build a place for God to dwell. God has been wandering around with the Israelites in the tabernacle all of this time, and David wants to build a temple. And look what God's answer said. Look at the wording. It says, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So here is where God's talking about dwelling again and, the, and linking it very closely with the concept of rest. Of course, on the way to having their kingdom established forever, the Israelites took a terrible detour. And they, they were evicted from their land of rest just as Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, and just as Moses prophesied before he died. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 63 through 66, Moses actually tells the Israelites, before they ever enter the Promised Land, he tells them they're going to end up disobeying God. Here's what he says. And it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And among those nations you will find no rest, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there... This is the definition coming up of not rest, okay? <laughs> this is the opposite of God's rest we're fixing to read. There the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. 
So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in dread day and night, and shall have no assurance of your life. So when we live in a state of no rest, we're scattered, separated from the fellowship with God. We toil. We have a trembling heart, failing eyes, despair. Always the Israelites were given a choice. They could accept God's great gift or they could despise it. Of course, we know what happened. If you look in Jeremiah 6, 15 through 16, this is after some period of time has elapsed and the Israelites have been despising the Lord for quite some time. And here's what the Lord says. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. Nehemiah 9, 24 through 28. This is after... Israel had been taken into captivity and were now just being allowed to return after their years in captivity. And, and, and this is kind of a looking back. It says, Their sons went in and took possession of the land. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. This is when they first went out into the promised land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. This was, you know, when they first entered the promised land under Joshua was when that happened. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. And when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. It would be nice if you could stop there and say they lived happily ever after. That's not what happened, is it? But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. There were other significant Sabbath rests in the law that give us more clues about God's rest. We figured out quite a bit so far. But once a year, the nation was supposed to gather for the act of atonement, for the annual Yom Kippur, the atonement of their sins. And that was to be, according to Leviticus 16.31, that was to be a Sabbath of solemn rest, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So obviously it's a pause, and a pause of significance, an annual pause, but the celebration in this case is of hum humility and reverence. For what? For atonement of our sins. And what is the purpose of atonement of our sins? I think we talked about this in an earlier lesson. The only it, Atonement cleanses us of our sins, right? But there's no reason to cleanse us of our sins unless it's for some purpose. And the reason that we're cleansed from our sins is to allow us to come into the presence of God.
to allow us to fellowship with God without being utterly burnt to a crisp from his holiness, okay? That's the whole point of atonement. And that was the point of the Sabbath rest of Yom Kippur. There's also supposed to be a Sabbath rest for the land. That's decreed in many places, but one of them is Leviticus 25, verse 2 through 5. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. The land will have a Sabbath. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. And that was completely parallel to that first Sabbath, the one with the manna, because during the sixth Sabbath year, there was enough food given to last actually three years. It lasted the sixth year, which they had just harvested, right? It fed them for the sixth year. It fed them during the seventh year. And it fed them during the eighth year when they were allowed to plant their fields. Yeah, lasted three years. So, I mean, this is just a, if you ask me, an exclamation point to what Sabbath is about. Because on the part of the man, of man Sabbath and the land, Sabbath of the land especially was an act of obedience in which you demonstrate your trust for God, for God's provision. Our obligation in a Sabbath rest is that we must believe God to the point that we stop trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we stop trying to provide for ourselves, we stop trying to hoard and store up treasures for ourselves, but we make ourselves vulnerable to God. Well, the Israelites didn't do a very good job of this. They didn't stay faithful to God, and they are scattered even to this day. But when Jesus came, he gave them a chance to enter his rest once again. They refused. And here's what Jesus said. He stood looking over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It won't be till the thousand-year reign of Christ, till the second coming, that the Israelites, the Jews, will finally experience God's rest. But when that happens, what a rest it will be. And we get to share in it now that we've been grafted in. And here's what that rest looks like. Isaiah 11, verse 9 through 12. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. In Isaiah 65, 18 through 24, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying shall be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and other people live in them, or plant and other people eat. For as the days of the tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. That has all the earmarks of God's rest, right? Sounds like the Garden of Eden. Sounds like the promised land. It is a promised land. In this rest, certainly, man and God are going to dwell together. We are going to walk in fellowship. It's that kind of rest. All of these rests are very literal physical rests. This is not pie-in-the-sky allegory rest. This is physical rest. But, of course, in each of them there is a rest and refreshing of the Spirit, too. Jesus calls us to enter God's rest now, to begin our walk in fellowship with Him now. Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Handout five, we're not really going to go through. Handout five is just for your review. It's kind of a summary of what we've looked at on God's rest. But here's some characteristics of God's rest, that the spiritual rest that Jesus offered. And I do think it's in your scripture references. First, Jesus already prepared it for us and, in, and is inviting us in. Revelation 22, 16 through 17. I, Jesus, have sent, that's past tense, my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And of course, that echoes many similar promises of bread and water and life that Jesus promised us immediately now while he was here. The second thing about Jesus' rest is that every provision has been made for our needs. So first off, Jesus provided the rest, right? Secondly, he's made provision for us. John 6:35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So we're talking about our spiritual rest here. Thirdly, man's supposed to work but not be a burden. We just read that. Remember the burden, the yoke is easy, the burden is light. Fourthly, man's sin 
has been atoned for permanently. That means we've been cleansed permanently, making it possible for preparing us to walk with God. 1 John 2, verse 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So, now that we're cleansed from sin, the next step is God now dwells with man. John 17, 23. I in them, and you in me. May they be, this is Jesus saying, I in, in them, as in the disciples, and you the Father, in me, Jesus. May they be brought, may the disciples, may my people, be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So he's saying, we're all in this together. Me, the Father, my, the people. And lastly, remember the last and final important part of entering God's rest? Our obedience. We have, our obedience is a necessary expression of our trust in God's provision. Our part is to stop hoarding and trying to provide for our own needs. Matthew 6, 24 through 25. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Even after the thousand-year reign, there's one more rest. And that's the eternal order. After heaven and earth pass away and a new heaven and a new earth are created, we will find God's rest in the new Jerusalem. And it has all the same characteristics. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So now we have a much better understanding of what entering God's rest means. And so now we're probably prepared to understand Hebrews chapter 4. As the writer of Hebrews pointed out in chapter 3, the Israelites refused to believe and they wandered around in the wilderness 40 years till they died. Now only the two who did believe, that would be Caleb and Joshua, were allowed to enter the promised land of God's rest with the new generation. And now in chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews is warning these Hebrew Christians that they're once again in danger of refusing the great gift of God's rest. Hebrews 4.1 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The word rest here is katoposis, and it literally means rest as in repose, just like we just like we saw before, but it has a second meaning, and that meaning is abode. It's a when it's when the definition says by Hebraism, that means by like by colloquialism, by common usage in Hebrew. It this word meant abode, dwelling place. Dwelling with God. According to G. Campbell Morgan, this is the same word in, that is used in classical Greek to describe colonization. Okay. So it's that kind of a you know, it's making a community kind of abode. So this says, this verse doesn't say we should rest, does it? It says we should enter God's rest. See the difference? And now you're better prepared to understand that difference from what we've looked at. But we are to come into the dwelling place prepared for us by God. There's another part of this verse where the phraseology is kind of strange. Instead of saying we should be alarmed if we fail to reach the promised rest, it says we should be alarmed if it seems we have failed to reach it. Now, for one thing, that's in the past tense, which implies that we you know, could have already reached it. For another thing, what does it matter how things seem? That doesn't make any sense. So when something doesn't make any sense, what do we do? We go back and we look at the original language to see if maybe something got lost in the translation. So this particular phrase is actually a verb phrase. It has two parts. The first part, which is hustereo, means exactly what it says, to fall short of. Okay, it means to be inferior, fall short of, be deficient. Okay, but the part that's translated seem to is the word dokeo. And yes, it can mean to seem to, to think, to seem, but it can also mean to be accounted. And that's the translation that makes a lot more sense. Okay, I, and, and I just don't, you know, pick these out on my own. Sometimes I pick them out on my own, but mostly I also, I also look up, you know, other commentators, people who are Greek experts, like Kenneth West, and, and, and his commentary states that the verb phrase could just as accurately be translated, judged to be falling, to have fallen short, okay? So that makes sense to me, because if you use that translation, what that would say is, therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, we should be alarmed lest any of us should be accounted as having fallen short of it. Okay? That translation is consistent with the idea we can enter God's rest now and that ultimately there will be an accounting or judgment in which it will be seen whether we have entered it or not. Entering God's rest is an act of obedience. Read that trust okay, in God's blessing. Not entering God's rest is an act of willful disobedience. Read unbelief, similar to that of the Israelites in the desert. So look at Hebrews verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. And this verse can be confusing because of the way it is translated. In many translations, it says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, meaning the Israelites. 
So for unto us Christians was the gospel preached as well as to the Israelites. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And some some translations, instead of the word gospel, say good news was preached. All right. I think using the words good news is helpful because obviously the Old Testament Israelites did not hear the gospel in the sense of Jesus Christ has come now, okay, that we have. But they did hear the gospel message. They did hear the good news. It's the, and it's the same good news we hear. The good news is the mercy and grace and salvation of God is available to you. Pardon? Pardon me? I can't hear you. Yes, the blood had not come, you know, we didn't have Christ's death and resurrection yet. But the message that God was a merciful God, that he loved them, that he would provide for them, and that they would live with him and dwell with him, was the message from the beginning to the Israelites. And that is the same good news we hear that God loves us and he is making it possible. He will make it and has made it possible for us to dwell with him. But, but, but it's very interesting, the second half of this verse, because it says, the message they heard didn't have any value for them because they didn't combine it with faith. And several commentators pointed out that the word combine is the same word as digest. They did not digest the word with faith, mix it with faith in the sense of digesting it. They just let it pass right through and they lost it. So Hebrews uh, 4 verses 3 and 4. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So see, all you have to do is believe and you enter the rest. God said, I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. Now if you hadn't just done all that work with me about what does God's rest and Sabbath rest all mean, you would never be able to figure out what that, those two verses meant. But this is where the, our research will pay off. Because what he's saying is that if we believe we've entered God's rest already, and then he gives... So what these two verses are doing is giving his arguments, his logical support. He's saying, number one, those who disobeyed and rebelled in the desert were prevented from entering God's rest, right? What was their sin? Unbelief. They didn't believe that God could give them rest in a land that was populated by people bigger and stronger than they were. They did not believe in God's promises. By comparison, the writer says, we who have believed have already entered God's rest, just like Caleb and Joshua did, because they believed. And then continuing with that point, that the promise of God's rest existed then, and it exists now, the writer points out that God's rest has been available since the creation, as we have seen in the study we just did. And just in case we get confused or miss the point, the writer of Hebrews repeats it for us in verses 5 and 6. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. And it remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them that did not go in, because 
of their disobedience. I mean, basically he's saying if it says that some didn't enter the rest, by inference you can assume that some did. Okay, it wasn't an all or nothing proposition. It was some did, some didn't. He's already reminded us that the offer of rest began at creation and was repeated at the border of the promised land. So now he goes on to show that the offer of God's rest was extended again long after the new generation of Israelites had finally entered the promised land. Verse 7. Therefore, God set a certain day, calling it the today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this is a quote from Psalm 95. So his point is, God gave them the opportunity to enter his rest at the border of the promised land. And they totally messed it up. They did go in, but they definitely messed up. And yet, at the time of David, God made the promise again. Look at Psalm 95. It's real short. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he, he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my way. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews points out that this offer was during the time of David and that it was good for a period of time called today. Quote. So he goes on in Hebrews 4, 8 through 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Okay, he, there would have been no reason to bring this up with David if when they entered the promised land with Joshua, they had actually entered God's rest. That's his point. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says that means there's one we can still enter. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews is reminding them that when they finally entered the promised land, even though God went before them and cleared out their enemies, the Israelites continued to be a stiff-necked people, and they missed out on the intended blessing. But God, in his infinite mercy and love, reached out to them again in the time of David. Now, verse 9, which is right in the middle there, uses a word for rest that is different than the word the writer's been using all along. The, remember, we just looked at it where the word for rest meant an abode, a dwelling place. Okay, This word is Sabbath rest, and the word is sabbatismos. And it means... He is reminding them of our role in the Sabbath rest. He's reminding them of the special obligation under that rest, our obligation of relinquishing our control, relinquishing our control over our own well-being. 
At creation, the Sabbath rest was a significant pause of celebration, a transition from the beginning to the happily ever after. Okay? The Sabbath rest we're offered now is also a transition. It's a step of faith, a relinquishment of our will, and it's through this act of trust that we enter God's rest. Verses 12 through 13 in Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now people debate over whether the word of God here where it says the word of God is living and active. Some people think it's the Bible, period, the written pages right here. Other people say no, it's talking about the word with a capital W, Jesus Christ, as in the word of the Gospel of John. I think it encompasses both. Deuteronomy 8.3 says God let the Israelites become hungry in the wilderness so he could feed them with manna from heaven. That's why he didn't just give them food before they got hungry. He wanted them to feel hunger and understand that they, had, they needed to be dependent on him to relieve that hunger. And it's that very verse that Jesus quoted because it's that verse that says he did it so he could feed them with manna from heaven so they would know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, by the word. Okay, we're to live by the words that come from the mouth of God. Well, in Revelation 1.16, Christ is described in, his, in this vision of John as having a double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. Remember that? So this is just the vision. The word is continually compared to a sword. And, and it is here in Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in Revelation 19.15, Christ uses that sword coming from his mouth to strike down the nations. Okay? Ephesians 6:17 says the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The Bible is a whole lot more than just a collection of written words. It is alive with the spirit. Isaiah 55 verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word encompasses much more than just this collection of writings that we call the Bible. John sixteen thirteen. Jesus himself said that. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. The piercing, when in verse 12 where it talks about the sword piercing through the, to separate the spirit from the soul and the you know, joint from the marrow. That piercing means going through. Okay, it's as in a sword piercing the heart. The word is able to pierce through our spirit, through our soul, through our bodies. It doesn't mean it's separating our soul 
from our spirit. It means it's piercing through our soul, piercing through our spirit. It's not separating our joints from our marrow. It's piercing through our joints, through our marrow. The word for exposed, when it says that we are all exposed before God, there is nothing hidden in us. That word for exposed is trachalizo, and it literally means this. It's what the Romans did when they grabbed a, a, a victim, a condemned criminal, by the head, hair and yanked his head back and exposed the neck. That's what that word means. And that is how vulnerable we are before God. So what's the point? Well, the point is we must not harden our hearts. We must believe God when he says he's going to bless us. How many people don't believe that? You know, how many people see God as waiting to beat them over the head with a baseball bat? I think they think that because Christians act like that. You know, I, it, but that's not who God is. I mean, definitely God is a judge, okay? And there will be judgment. But the whole message from the beginning is that God's heart is to bless us. And we can rely on God, even in our weakness and our imperfection. And we can enter God's rest now because Jesus understands our weaknesses and our temptations. He can show us how to overcome. He intercedes for us before God. And we can be sure that the blessings promised to us by God will happen. And we must hold on to those promises. Don't let anybody talk you out of them. The writer of Hebrews is going to spend the next several chapters explaining Jesus' role as our high priest. And then in chapter 10, he will repeat the call to a holy life and call us to remain steadfast in our hope and be absolutely sure of the promises of God. So let, let I want to read, we're just going to take the preview of Hebrews 10, verse 23 through 39. This is kind of the end of the parentheses. We've just done the opening parentheses. This is the closing parentheses of a whole section of Hebrews. And, and since they're related, I want to read the closing parentheses. Therefore, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day with a capital D, Judgment Day, approaching. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and last, more lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, 
but of those who believe and are saved.